You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a five-part series of messages on the new life in Christ that John Stott presented at Founders Week 1977. John Stott was an author and rector emeritus of All Souls Church in London, England. Now, here is John Stott on Today in the Word radio. Yesterday, our topic was the new life that God has given us in Christ. And today we move on to the new society which God is creating through Christ. The society of his people, the Christian church, redeemed and reconciled by Jesus Christ. And our text is chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 11 to the end of chapter 3. Let me introduce it like this. A very fashionable word in contemporary society today, particularly among young people, is the word alienation. There are many people who are disillusioned with what they call the system or the establishment or the technocracy who describe themselves as alienated. It was Karl Marx who popularized the word having himself taken it from the German theologian Ludwig Feuerbach. And to Marx, the real plight of the proletariat was its alienation, its economic alienation. The word is often used today not so much in economic as in political terms for people who feel that they are powerless victims of society. Well... Long before Karl Marx had ever been heard of or thought of, the Bible spoke of alienation. It spoke of two even worse alienations than economic and political alienation, namely alienation from God, our Creator, on the one hand, and alienation from one another, our fellow creatures, on the other. It's very fascinating that the book of Ephesians refers to both these alienations, alienation from God and alienation from one another, and tells us the marvelous good news of how Jesus Christ has turned this alienation into reconciliation, having now reconciled us to God and to one another. Of this double alienation alienation from God and from the people of God, the so-called middle wall of partition in the temple was a standing symbol. It was a notable feature of the temple built by Herod the Great in Jerusalem. Perhaps I need just to describe it to you a little bit. You need to imagine the temple built on an elevated platform. And round the temple itself, on the platform was the court of the priests and the court of lay men and lay women of the Israelite community. From that platform you descended five steps to another platform and then 14 more steps to a high stone barricade beyond which was the so-called court of the Gentiles. And interspersed at various intervals along this stone barricade, there were notices telling the Gentiles to keep out and threatening not trespassers will be prosecuted, 
that trespasses will be executed. And that if any Gentile goes beyond the barricade and presumes to come anywhere near the temple, he will have himself responsible for his ensuing death. Now that is the background to the passage we're going to look at this morning. The middle wall of partition, the separation of the Gentiles from God and from the people of God. The wonderful theme of the passage is that Jesus has destroyed this middle wall of partition. He's reconciled us to God. He's reconciled us to one another. He's broken down the dividing wall of hostility. He has created a single new humanity. The first section we're going to look at then, chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, I will call Paul's Affirmation. It is the affirmation by the Apostle Paul that Jesus Christ has destroyed the middle wall of partition. He begins in verses 11 and 12 with his portrait of an alienated humanity or what we once were. Look at those verses. He says, At one time, you Gentiles were, verse 12, separated from Christ, alienated, there is our word, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. A terrible five-fold deprivation. William Hendrickson, in his commentary on Ephesians puts it in these words. They were Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. Or in Paul's single phrase of verse 13, they were far off, alienated from God and from the people of God. And this was our condition in our pre-Christian days, separated from God, I knew that in my own experience. There were times before my conversion I tried to get through into the presence of God. I felt that he was shrouded by mists and clouds and fog and that I couldn't penetrate into his presence. I knew that I was alienated. And I was not only alienated from God but alienated from the church, from the people of God just as were the Gentiles in olden days. Then Paul goes on from his portrait of an alienated humanity to his portrait of a peacemaking Christ. Verses 13 to 18. Verse 13, But now, another great adversative, but now, in Christ Jesus, that is when you're united to Christ by faith, You who were once far off, alienated, have been brought near, reconciled by means of the blood or the sacrificial death of Christ. For he is our peace, who has made both Jew and Gentile the two parts of the divided humanity. He has made them one and has broken down the middle wall of hostility. Now, the remarkable thing is that when Paul was writing this letter, 
the middle wall of partition surrounding the temple was still standing. If any of Paul's readers in Ephesus had gone to Jerusalem, they would have found that the middle wall of partition, this dividing barricade keeping the Gentiles out, had not been abolished. It was still there. It was not abolished until A.D. 70, when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Roman armies. But although literally and materially speaking it was still there, Paul knew with the eye of faith that spiritually and symbolically speaking it had been destroyed in A.D. 30 or so when Jesus died. He had destroyed this division between Jew and Gentile, and Gentiles were now admitted into the Christian community by faith in Jesus Christ. And the way in which Jesus had done it is he had abolished the law of commandments. That probably means primarily the ceremonial law, circumcision, the sacrificial system, the dietary regulations, all those things that separated Jews from Gentiles had been abolished by Christ. And he'd also abolished the condemnation of the moral law because he had borne it in his own innocent person when he died in our place on the cross. And by abolishing these things, he'd created a single, undivided, united humanity, Jew and Gentile together, and reconcile both to God in his body. The peacemaking Christ, the wonderful achievement of the cross. And having made peace, he went and preached peace, the gospel of reconciliation. So verses 19 to 21 he goes on to the portrait of God's new society, from the alienated humanity to the peacemaking Christ to God's new society or what we have become. So then, verse 19, as a result of the achievement of Jesus on the cross, you Gentiles are no longer what you used to be, alienated and cut off and far away. You're no longer strangers or even sojourners. On the contrary, your status has dramatically changed. What are you? Fellow, verse 19, fellow citizens with the saints. The saints there must be Israel. And you Gentiles are now fellow citizens with Israel. You're citizens together of the kingdom of God. Not only that, but the next phrase, you're members of the household of God. The kingdom is one thing, a family is another. You're not only fellow citizens of God's kingdom, you're brothers and sisters in God's family. And thirdly, you're members of God's building or temple. For you're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, their teaching being the foundation of the church. And Jesus is the chief cornerstone of the building. And you as members of the church are like living stones built into the structure. And this building is nothing other than a holy temple in the Lord 
a dwelling place of God by his Spirit. So then let's sum up what Paul teaches here regarding the new society. Once he says you are alienated from Israel and from Israel's God, but now in Christ Jesus you've been brought near. For Christ abolished the ceremonial law and the condemnation of the moral law. He's created a single new humanity, reconciled it to God, and so now you're no longer the aliens and the strangers you used to be. You're God's kingdom over which he rules, God's family which he loves, and God's building in which he dwells. More simply, you were alienated. You have been reconciled, and Christ has brought you home. It's most wonderful and glorious teaching. Well, that is the vision, the vision of this new humanity, this new, reconciled, loving, caring society. Ah, but when you turn from the ideal that is portrayed in Scripture to the concrete reality that is experienced in our churches today, it is a very different and a very tragic story. But even in the church, there is often alienation and disunity and discord. And Christians today sometimes presume to erect new barriers in the community in which Christ has destroyed them. Now a racist caliber. Now nationalism. Now tribalism. Now a divisive caste or social class system. Now a clericalism that sunders the clergy from the laity as if they were two different species or two different breeds. Now a denominationalism that turns churches into sects and denies the unity and the universality of the church, God's new society. Brothers and sisters, as it is only right for me to address you in the family of God, these things ought not to be. They are doubly offensive. They are offensive to Christ, and they are offensive to the world. They are offensive to Christ, an insult to him that we should dare to build walls of partition in the one and only human community in which he has destroyed them. And they are also offensive to the world because they prevent the world from believing in Jesus. And the tragedy is that the church that is intending to be a stepping stone to faith becomes more often a stumbling block to faith. I sometimes wonder if it is an exaggeration to say, but I don't think it is, that the main hindrance to the spread of the gospel in the world today is the church. The church that is intended to be an agent of evangelism, 
is instead more often a barrier to the spread of the gospel. I wonder then if there is anything more urgent than that the Church of Jesus Christ should be and should be seen to be what in God's purpose and Christ's achievement it is. A new society, a new united humanity, God's kingdom, God's family, God's building or temple in which he dwells, the evident dwelling place of God by his Spirit. If the church were obviously the supernatural new community that God intends it to be, only then would men believe in Christ the peacemaker and God would receive the glory that is due to his name. We need to get the failures of the church on our conscience so that we pray for the renewal of the church and the reform and the revival of the church so that it may become in reality what it already is in theory and in the ideal. Paul's affirmation about the new society. Now secondly, we move on to chapter 3, and in verses 1 to 11 we come to Paul's ministry. Paul now introduces himself and he describes his own unique role in the purpose of God for the Gentiles. He says, chapter 3, verse 1, for this reason, I, Paul, you see how he introduces himself, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul has been arrested and imprisoned and is awaiting trial before the emperor in Rome, because of fanatical Jewish hostility for his message. And his message is the Jew and Gentile are now admitted into the Christian church, the new society, the new community, on equal terms. So it is, you see, because of Paul's insistence upon this good news that he is suffering. He is suffering, he is imprisoned, because of the very message that he is unfolding in this letter. He doesn't only believe it. He doesn't only preach it. He is prepared to suffer for it, which indicates his own integrity. Twice in these verses, he uses the same expression. Once in verse 2 and once in verse 7 namely, the grace of God that was given to me. He refers to two gracious gifts of God to him. The first was a certain revelation, a certain mystery that had been revealed to him as a result of which he'd come to know something previously secret. And the second thing he'd been given was a certain ministry, a certain commission as a result of which he had a responsibility to make known to others what God had made known to him. The first was the revelation of a mystery to him. The second was a commission or ministry to make it known to others. Let's look at those two things for a few minutes. A, 
the divine revelation to Paul or the mystery. Three times he uses the word mystery in this paragraph, and it's important to grasp that the English and the Greek words for mystery do not mean the same thing. In English, a mystery is a secret that is still dark and mysterious and obscure and puzzling. Something that is mysterious is inexplicable and even incomprehensible in English. But in Greek, the word mysterion refers not to a secret, but to a secret which has been made known. Mysterion is an open secret, something that has hitherto been concealed, but has now been revealed. What is this mystery that has been revealed to the Apostle Paul? Well, he tells us in verse 6. That is, this is the mystery revealed, that the Gentiles are now fellow heirs, that is, they share in the same inheritance, members of the same body, the body of Christ, and partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the wonderful truth, the mystery that has been revealed to Paul, is that now in Christ Jews and Gentiles are united with one another by being united to Jesus Christ. Now, of course, the Old Testament did reveal that God had a purpose for the Gentiles. Way back 2,000 years before Christ, God had revealed to Abraham that through his posterity, all the nations of the world were going to be blessed. But what had not been revealed in the Old Testament was exactly how this was going to take place. Namely, that the old theocracy, the national Jewish kingdom, was going to be replaced by an international spiritual community, God's new society, the Church. And that in this, the body of Christ, Jews and Gentiles were going to be united on equal terms and were going to be completely one with each other by being completely one with Christ. It was this, the complete union of Jew and Gentile in Christ, which was radically new. And God had revealed it to Paul. So that was the divine revelation. Now be the divine commission to Paul, verses 7 to 13. And this commission was to make known to others what had been made known to him. God had revealed this mystery to him about the union of Jews and Gentiles in the body of Christ. Now Paul had to make it known to others. He'd become the apostle to the Gentiles. So he says in verse 8, and we need to mark the stages in which he fulfills his ministry. The first is, verse 8, to preach the riches of Christ among the Gentiles. Just notice, will you, in passing, that the good news that Paul shares with the Gentiles is the unsearchable riches of Christ. There isn't anybody who's listening, is there, 
who imagines that when you come to Christ, he's going to impoverish your life. Why, when we come to Christ, he immeasurably enriches our lives. The riches that Christ bestows upon us are unsearchable. The Greek word means that they cannot be tracked out. You will never come to the end of them. Commentators vie with one another in trying to find an English equivalent to the Greek word. They say that his riches are inexplorable, untraceable, unfathomable, illimitable, unsearchable. That is, you will never come to the end of them. Certainly not in time, and I think probably not in eternity either. So great are the riches of Christ, you will never fathom them. So Paul had to proclaim to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. But the second stage in his ministry was to make all men see, verse 9, the mystery. So he didn't only preach Christ's riches, he preached Christ's mystery. That is, the church, the body of Christ, and the union of Jew and Gentile within the body of Christ. So the church was part of the gospel that he proclaimed. It was his responsibility to make all men see the mystery. And then the third stage is in verse 10, in order that through the church, the cosmic powers, that is the unseen principalities and powers who are watching, might come to learn God's manifold wisdom. In other words, that through the coming into being of the church, Jew and Gentile, multiracial, multicultural, or as the Greek word means, the many-colored wisdom of God is many-colored, like a tapestry or like a carpet. The many-colored wisdom of God is seen in the many-colored, multicultural community, the church that is coming into being. And as all over the world, God's new society grows from every nation and every culture and every race, the principalities and powers who are watching from heaven come to learn of the many-colored wisdom of God. So you see the three stages in the communication of God's purpose. First from God to Paul, then from Paul to all men, and then through the coming into being of the church, back to the principalities and powers who are watching and learning of God's providence as they see it being fulfilled in history. Now I want to suggest that we may learn two important things from this passage. The first is that the church is central to history. Paul is writing here about an eternal purpose of God a purpose conceived in a past eternity, worked out through time, reaching a climax in history and passing on to eternity beyond. What is this purpose of God? It is Christ and his church. It is the creating through Jesus Christ of a single new humanity, God's new redeemed people. 
That is the center of the historical purpose of God. So let me ask you, is that your understanding of history? We've all studied history. I did at school. I found it abominably dull. What's the point of history? Sometimes we're just given endless dates that we have to memorize. Was Henry Ford right when he said in 1919, during that famous libel suit with the Chicago Tribune, history is bunk? Was he right? Is history just a random succession of events that has no meaning? Or is Karl Marx right in his dialectical understanding of history? Or has history some other clue? The Christian answers that the purpose of history is that God is calling out of the secular community a new community, his own redeemed people who have an eternal destiny, And that is the center of the historical purpose of God. And then the church is not only central to history, it's part of the gospel. Brethren, sometimes our gospel is too individualistic, as if the gospel was simply, Jesus died for me. Hallelujah, he did, it's true, but it's not the whole truth. The fuller truth of the gospel is that he died for me and for you. He died for us and he rose again in order that he should create a single new humanity, God's new society. The church, the mystery, it's part of the gospel. So let's not truncate the good news by leaving out this important element in it. So in our last few minutes, we move on to the third section, Paul's prayer. We've looked at his affirmation about the new society. We've looked at his ministry, his own personal role in the fulfillment of this purpose. Thirdly, we look at his prayer, verses 14 to 21. He bows his knees to the Father, the great Father of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is known. Why? He's talking about this new family that God is bringing into being. So, of course, now he bows down to the father of the family. And he prays that the vision and the dream may come true. So what does he pray? Well, the substance of his prayer seems to be four petitions. The first is for strength, that you may be strengthened with might by his Spirit into your very inner man so that Christ may dwell and it probably means may rule in your hearts by faith. He prays for this deep inward strength by the indwelling of Christ in the heart of the believer through the Holy Spirit. And you see, it isn't possible for us to live the Christian life in the new community without this inward strength of the Holy Spirit in our inner man. He prays for strength. Second, he prays for love. Indeed, it is that we may be strengthened to love, that we may be rooted and grounded in love, that our roots may go down into the soil of love, that the building of our life may be founded upon this foundation of love, rooted and founded in love. 
that love, you see, may be the roots and the foundation of our lives. This new community, this new society Paul is writing about, it will never come fully into being without love. Love is what binds the new society together. God's new society is a society of love. So he prays that we may be rooted and grounded in love. Then, thirdly, he prays for knowledge, that we may know particularly the love of Christ in all its dimensions, its length, breadth, depth, and height, although it passes knowledge. Commentators warn us not to be too literal in our understanding of the dimensions of Christ's love, but it seems to me legitimate to say that his love is broad enough to encompass the world, Jews and Gentiles, which is the theme of the whole passage, broad enough to encompass them in its embrace. It's long enough to last for eternity. It's deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner. And it's high enough to exalt him to heaven. And the ancient commentators used to see these dimensions of the love of Christ symbolized in the cross. For the cross of Christ goes down into the earth, points upwards to heaven, while on the cross beam are the arms of Christ stretched out as if to embrace the whole world. And we need to grasp the love of Christ for the world if we are to see this new society in its fullness. Which brings us to the fourth prayer, which is the word fullness, that we may be filled literally right up to the very fullness of God. A prayer surely that looks beyond this life into a future eternity when the glorified people of God will be able to receive all that divine fullness of which they are capable without ceasing to be human beings. What a prayer. What a perspective of strength and love and knowledge and fullness in this new society of God. And so he ends with the doxology to him who is able to do. And able to do what we ask. And able to do what we ask or even imagine, for we sometimes think what we dare not ask and able to do more than what we ask or think, much more, very much more than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. What power? Well, the power of the resurrection that we thought about yesterday morning, the power that raised Christ from the dead, the power that exalted him to heaven, the power that has raised and exalted us, the power that is at work within us individually, the power that is at work within the Christian community. Do you see how Paul moves some limitless love, the love of Christ beyond knowledge, to limitless power, the power of God beyond imagining? It's only divine power which can generate divine love in the divine community. 
And so he prays for this power that it may be at work within the community because only then could the dream of the new society come true. And then to him will be the glory for the power comes from him and the glory must go to him in Christ and in the church throughout all generations of time and even in eternity. Let us pray. O Lord, we thank you for helping us to dream your dream together this morning, a dream of a new society, a new humanity, in which alienation and discord and racism and all other barriers have been destroyed and your people are one in love and peace and harmony. We thank you for the reconciling work of Jesus Christ and we pray that by your divine power in the Christian community, the dream may come true. For the glory of your great name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and a message on the new life in Christ that John Stott presented at Founders Week 1977. John Stott was an author and rector emeritus of All Souls Church in London, England. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.